0: listening to Case Confirmed, a public health podcast series. Each month, we interview a different expert in the field of public health. The team behind Case Confirmed has four members, myself, Mira, Dina, Vijaytha, and Arya. To learn more about us, visit our website at www.caseconfirmed.com. For this episode, we're featuring Dr. Kim Shea of Boston University School of Public Health. Dr. Shea is an epidemiologist with a focus on vaccine-preventable diseases and the post-licensure effectiveness of vaccination.
1: All right, Dr. Shea, thank you so much again for being here today with us on Case Confirmed. Could you tell our listeners a little bit of kind of what the process is for getting a flu vaccine and why sometimes it doesn't work? Well, the seasonal influenza has been really
2: widespread this year, and it's impacted a lot of people in all the states in the United States. It's been a very challenging season in terms of the high number of cases as well as the high number of complications that people have experienced. I think in understanding seasonal influenza vaccination, it's important to understand, like you said, a little bit about the process. And there are a couple of challenges in the way that we develop Uh, seasonal influenza vaccine every year. And, And the first one is the influenza virus mutates every year. And important to know about this is the influenza virus has a critical protein on the surface. And that protein is called hemagglutinin or the H in the influenza H1N1 or H3N2 as we have this year. When we're designing a vaccine, the vaccines that we design are intended to fight against this surface protein. And the reason for this is this is the protein that influenza uses to invade or infect our cells. The problem is, is that this protein tends to mutate very, very quickly, and it mutates from year to year. And as it changes, it changes so much that the vaccine that protected us from influenza last year isn't going to work to protect us from influenza this year. This is why the CDC recommends that all persons living in the United States who are aged six months or older get an influenza vaccine every year. Last year's vaccine doesn't work for this year. Of course, this is somewhat annoying for patients that they have to get a vaccine every single year, but it's also a difficult and burdensome on the healthcare system because we need to make sure that we have the capacity to give our patients a new vaccine every year. The second problem, or the second reason why influenza vaccination may not work very well every year is uh, it takes a lot of time to produce a vaccine. And although we've gotten very good at the way that we produce influenza vaccination, we need a couple of months lead time. And, And what that means is we're making important decisions about which strains to include in influenza vaccination six months before the influenza vaccination season starts. So, for example, the influenza vaccine formulation for next year, the 2018 vaccine, is going to be decided on March 1st, which is just a couple of days away, even though the influenza vaccine season won't start until next you know, fall, probably in October. The way that the FDA determines what strains are going to go into the vaccine every year is what they do is they look at the flu strains that are circulating today in South America. And we've actually been looking at that for the past couple of months. What we know, based on really good evidence that that we believe in, is that whatever's circulating in South America now is eventually going to make its way up into North America. And it's going to travel um, and be with us in time for next year's flu season. Unfortunately, though, throughout that journey, the influenza virus is going to undergo some changes, and in the process of undergoing those changes, whatever design we settle on with respect to the influenza vaccination may not apply to next year's uh, vaccine or virus strain.
1: So is the FDA kind of like the, I don't know, the central place where this gets decided, or is there a network of scientists that are deciding this and everybody gets on the same page? Like, who oversees this process? So, yeah,
2: the uh, the FDA plays a critical part in the process here in the United States. And actually what happens is before the FDA even starts their involvement, the, the WHO is keeping track of the influenza viruses that are circulating around the globe at any given time. And together, the WHO and other public health experts around the country are monitoring what's going on and They are using this information to try to predict what's going to happen next year. So here in the United States, the FDA relies heavily on surveillance data from around the world. We rely mostly on what's happening in South America, because again, those strains are going to um, travel directly up to North America. The FDA is working in conjunction with the CDC and other influenza experts to, to make these predictions.
1: It's really interesting. I didn't know that it was tracked from South America and how it makes its way up to North America, um, is that something that's relatively new, or has that been the case um, for as long as we've had the flu vaccine? I believe we've known for a long time
2: uh, that Uh, sort of transmission patterns of influenza. You know, a lot of influenza starts um, in the east and it it moves its way across the southern hemisphere and from the southern hemisphere moving up into the northern hemisphere. And so we, you know, with the advent of things like genetic fingerprinting and and so on, we're able to really trace carefully exactly the origin of different influenza viruses and, and we know where they diverged from or where they started. The third problem with influenza vaccination is that it really only works if people get it. The flu vaccine is not great, but of course it is better than anything else that we currently have for the prevention of seasonal influenza. And this year's flu vaccine is about 30% effective. And that's against the predominant strain, which is H3N2. We believe that it's a little bit more effective even against the other less predominant strains. There's an H1N1 strain and some influenza B strains that are also circulating. I realize that 30% may not sound that great, but 30% is a lot better than the 0% effectiveness for people who don't get vaccinated at all.
0: So Dr. Shea, you kind of touched on this issue of not enough people getting vaccinated for flu. And this seems to be a problem across the board with different types of vaccinations where people hesitate because of either what they've heard from their friends, neighbors, the news, et cetera, about potential side effects of getting vaccinated. What do you think about people's concerns surrounding vaccination? And what would you say to them about whether um, those concerns are founded on any facts?
2: Uh, great, Mira. Thanks for that question. Um, you're right. I think a lot of people are concerned about vaccination today, and it's it's definitely a part of our conversation. I think there are two main reasons that people are choosing not to be vaccinated. And that first one is there's a group of people who are opposed to compulsory or mandated vaccination. And there's a second group of persons who, as you said, are really concerned about the potential side effects from getting getting vaccinated. And I think um, a couple of really important messages are, first of all, infectious diseases themselves are are really dangerous, and we have a tool to prevent against those. Vaccination is safe. There's a lot of evidence um, proving this over and over again. And, you know, we've been using vaccines in our uh, communities for over 100 years. Um, Certain vaccines have been around, you know, for longer than that. So we know vaccines are safe. And importantly, uh, vaccines undergo very, very rigorous testing at the FDA. And even after they're licensed, vaccines undergo rigorous um, surveillance in which post-licensure effectiveness is evaluated for as long as a vaccine is in use. And and what that means is there are many um, systems that are designed to capture any adverse events or side effects that occur as a result of vaccination. The reality is we have identified some vaccines for which there were adverse events, and and when this happens, those vaccines were taken off the market. As an example, the rotavirus vaccine that was introduced in in 1998 was taken off the market after less than a year because there were some side effects. And that's because our um, safety monitoring system was working really well. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. Another really important thing to remember about vaccinations is that they're effective. Vaccination is one of the most important public health interventions that we have to date. And you know the, the WHO predicts that about three billion cases of disease and 500 million cases of death have been prevented due to vaccination. What that means is before we had vaccination, we had a lot more infectious diseases in the world than we have today. So keeping those three things in mind, um, infectious diseases are dangerous. Vaccines are safe and vaccines are effective against infectious diseases. The best thing a person can do to protect themselves against vaccine-preventable diseases that are still circulating in our community is to get vaccinated.
0: Thank you for the summary of the benefits of vaccination. A lot of people take public health for granted, I think, because nobody wakes up in the morning and says, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I don't have smallpox today. But it's very easy to recognize when a doctor has helped you or something like that. So I think it's great that you highlighted the benefits. And I just wanted to find out, given all of these advantages to vaccination, why there's a minority of the population that's opposed to it. And um, if you can describe their reasoning for their opposition.
2: So the community of persons who are uh, concerned about or what we call vaccine hesitant, so there are people who are afraid of vaccinations either for their children or for themselves for various reasons, I think that population is very heterogeneous, and as more and more research has been done in, in recent years, we're getting a much better understanding of sort of who these people are. And so there's a group of persons who are um, seeking actively new information about vaccines. And when you ask them for the first time, as new parents, for example, um, are you going to vaccinate your child? sort of have an immediate response to say, I don't know, should I? And and it's not really because they're opposed. It's because they're new parents and they have a new child and and, and they have a lot of decisions that they need to make right away. And and they're wondering, what if I make the wrong decision? And these people are really interesting because um, this group of persons who they're just not sure they're actually seeking information and they are relying on public health professionals to give them correct information because there's a lot of misinformation that's out there. And I think these people, again, are really interested in seeking out information and learning from us. I'm a relatively new parent. I have two little kids at home, a two-year-old and a five-year-old. And I remember, um, I have been teaching and and studying vaccination for a long time, but it wasn't until I started having my own children and entered a community of people who have little itty-bitty kids at home that I really started to understand these parents are just afraid of making the wrong decision for their children. So then kind of switching gears a minute, there's another population of people who are staunchly opposed to vaccination. And these persons are opposed for different reasons. Um, They honestly believe beyond a reasonable doubt in their minds that vaccinations cause more harm than good. And they are more concerned about side effects or other things that might happen as a result of vaccination. And, you know, what's interesting about, about this group of people is they've been very, very vocal. And that has been a bit problematic in the vaccine world because they're so vocal that a lot of people who aren't sure, they're seeking out information and they're getting a lot of or hearing a lot of information from this very, very vocal contingent of people who are very opposed to vaccination. Now, in, in understanding um, some of the heterogeneity about why some people do and, and do not accept vaccination, I think that is ultimately what we need to be able to design our interventions to figure out how to, how to solve this problem. So as we learn more about some of the reasons why people are um, opposed to vaccination, it gives us some new opportunities to really design the best interventions in order to promote vaccination. Because as I said before, we know that vaccination um, is one of the best public health interventions we have to prevent infectious diseases. You know, it's interesting to think a little bit about the origins of vaccine hesitancy in the United States, and I think a lot of people don't realize that this is not a new phenomenon. This has existed since the advent of vaccination, and and so if you think back to the late 1700s when um, Edward Jenner was the first person to do experiments related to smallpox vaccination, he was not widely accepted in his community. Actually, people were somewhat horrified that he was deliberately infecting people with, with something called cowpox, which was a, a cousin of smallpox. And, and the goal here was that if he was infecting people with cowpox, he could show that they were no longer being, um, they were no longer susceptible to, to smallpox. Uh, there are a lot of satirical cartoons depicting the fears of the time where people were really concerned that people were gonna turn into cows or other animals because they were being infected with these cow diseases. If you fast forward, you know, in the United States, there's a, a public health case that we teach our public health students called Jacobson v. Massachusetts. In, in in 1904, there was a case brought in front of the Massachusetts Supreme Court about a man named Jacobson who didn't want to be vaccinated. What he was concerned about was compulsory vaccination. It wasn't so much that he was opposed to vaccination in general, but he was opposed to the state of Massachusetts telling him that he didn't have a choice in getting vaccinated And in fact, um, he did have a choice. It was get vaccinated or pay the fine. And he didn't want to do that. I think the way we think about vaccine hesitancy today really dates back to about 1999 or 2000. And that's when we started to see a bit of a shift in the way people think about vaccines. And at least here in the United States, we started seeing an increase in things like um, personal belief exemptions. And so what this is, it means that someone can opt out of vaccination for their child, usually, by explaining to someone that they don't believe in vaccination for various reasons. And we started to see an increase in this, you know, right around 1999 or or 2000. And and we continue to see an increase in this um, in different states and, and different places Um, I do want to be careful to to say that it's not all states, but there are certain pockets um, of the United States where there are communities who are choosing not to vaccinate their children. And sometimes um, these personal belief exemptions are approaching eight, nine, 10% in certain locations. Um, That said, the majority of people who live in the United States are actually appropriately vaccinated. And so more than 95% of people who are supposed to get vaccinated are actually getting vaccinated, which is really exciting. Most people believe in vaccination. They are adhering to the physician recommendations, and they're really glad that they did. And so a lot of our research right now is trying to better understand um, these pockets of populations in the United States. What is it that's motivating them? Or more importantly, what is it that we could do with them? Can we engage with them in some way to help them um, better understand the benefits of vaccination?
1: That's really interesting. Is there some similarities between these pockets?
2: A lot of the communities in the United States that are opposed to vaccination, um, there are a couple of different reasons for that. One reason could be we have some areas of higher socioeconomic status, and there are populations there where parents are are saying that um, we are more concerned about adverse events than we are about vaccination, and that's one group of persons. Another group of persons, what you've heard about recently, perhaps in Minnesota, um, there's a Somali population there that is really concerned about vaccination, and so there are some cultural beliefs and origins there. And You know, um, that's a different reason and that's a different pocket of the population. Another um, area where vaccination is a little bit low is in the Western United States. And so Alaska and and parts of Washington state have very low vaccination. And I think um, what's interesting about that is, you know, communities tend to be comprised of people who share beliefs and and share ideas. And so there are some communities in which uh, vaccination is not widely accepted. And it's possible that some people who have the same beliefs and same ideas are choosing to live in the communities together.
1: I know these these pockets of people, as you mentioned, um, they tend to get in the media as, you know, vaccine opposers, but how big of a threat are they really and how big of a population are they? So the American population is overwhelmingly
2: in favor of vaccination. And I think this is really important because Again, um, for the past 15 years, the United States has consistently achieved um, target or above target levels of vaccination for uh, children. That means that we have consistently exceeded uh, 90% vaccine coverage among the vaccine eligible population. There are some people who can't get vaccinated in our population, and, and that's why that number is not 100%. Importantly, at the start of this school year, more than 95% of kindergarten students who are entering school were appropriately vaccinated for the um, MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. Um, another number that goes along with that is if you were to look at um, personal belief exemptions by state, and so those are non medical reasons for not being able to be vaccinated. That ranges from 0.1% to 1.5%. So the maximum being 1.5%, and that's in Alaska. So on average, you know, more than 95% of kindergartners are appropriately vaccinated as, as best we can tell. And you know, 1.5% or less of kindergartners have reported personal belief exemptions to vaccination. So I think that points a really great picture and, and shows that we're doing a really great job of vaccinating our, our children in particular. If we were to talk for a minute about adults, I think that's a completely different question, and we have a very different problem in adults, and and there are a couple of adult vaccines out there. Let's start there. There's influenza vaccination, of course, something called pneumococcal vaccination, which protects against the pneumococcal bacteria. Other vaccines for adults would be things like pertussis or tetanus. And adult vaccination um, is not as high as target levels. Um, For example, in the United States last year, less than 50% of adults were uh, vaccinated against influenza. However, the reasons for this seem to be very different. It's not that adults are actively choosing not to be vaccinated. The issues around this might be more access to care or point of contact with their physicians, missed opportunities, things like that.
1: All right, Thank you so much for all of that, Dr. Shea. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came um, to this field and what you're working on currently?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I ended up in epidemiology um, sort of as an, an older student. And, and I say that a little bit laughing at myself because I teach students now in epidemiology and a lot of the students I'm teaching are, are 22 years old and, and that's great. So I didn't, come to epidemiology until my late 20s, early 30s. Um, And and I got there by a little bit of a circuitous route, as I think most people do. I guess the thing that really got me into um, infectious diseases was that I studied laboratory sciences in college, and I was really interested in virology and and genetics and antibiotic resistance and, and things like that. But what I really miss were the people, and, and so I decided, um, you know, honest truth, I'll, just, I'll tell you how I ended up in the Peace Corps, was um, I'd had a biochem exam and it didn't go very well on a Thursday. And so on a Friday I woke up and, and I decided to take the day off of school. And, and the way that I did that was I filled out an application to the United States Peace Corps. Um, and, and about four months later, I, w- I was in the United States Peace Corps. So, um, and you know, I'm, I'm really glad that I had that experience. But I, I lived in East Africa for a couple of years and I learned a lot about um, HIV infection and, and persons who are infected with HIV. And, and my job was to go there and teach people about how to pre- prevent or protect themselves against HIV. The only problem is I was, I was 22 years old and I didn't really know a lot other than what I'd read in a book. And I very quickly learned that these people knew a heck of a lot more about HIV infection than I ever did. And so my, my focus really switched to trying to get a better understanding of what would help um, the situation where, where I was living at the time. And I realized then and there that I needed to take what I was good at which was um, numbers and science. And I needed to put that to a, to a better use with people, so not just in the laboratory. So eventually I made my way back to the United States and I landed in Boston. Um, I continued to do laboratory research a little bit, but I ended up in a public health program. And uh, I had some really, really great public health teachers. And um, I think they taught me about how I should be a teacher. So I spend a lot of my time now teaching and working with students and then doing some research. So I work in a couple of of different areas. I I think the majority of the work that I do is uh, around a disease called pneumococcal disease. And pneumococcal disease is caused by a bacteria called the the streptococcus pneumoniae or the pneumococcus. And it's a bacteria that is on all of us uh, all the time. It mostly lives in our nasopharyngeal passages, which means our nose. And the pneumococcus is interesting because it's one of the most common causes of pneumonia, but it also causes something called invasive pneumococcal disease. And invasive disease is a blood infection with this bacteria. So a lot of us have heard of that as septicemia. So when a patient is septic, um, a lot of times it's because they're infected with uh, the pneumococcus. And another thing it causes is a great deal of ear infections in, in little kids. And so a lot of my work is with this bacteria, and what I actually try to do is try to understand how this, uh, the epidemiology of this bacteria has changed over time now that we have a new pediatric vaccine for it. And, and I say new, but we actually have had a vaccine since the year 2000. So a new vaccine formulation came on the market in um, 2011. And so what I do is post-licensure evaluation of uh, population impacts of the pneumococcal vaccine. And, and what we're trying to understand um, are a couple of different things. One, what kind of selective pressures has vaccination imposed on the bacteria? So, for example, um, similar to other viruses that you've probably heard of, uh, HPV, for example, uh, is caused predominantly by four um, strains. And similarly, the pneumococcus, there are more than 100 strains known, but about 10 or 20 strains cause the majority of disease. And so my work is in trying to understand now that we vaccinate against a bunch of strains, what has happened to the other strains? Have they gone up over time? Have they gone down over time? Are they causing new manifestations of disease? Um, Have they switched the age group in which they um, are most prevalent? Another aspect of my work is trying to understand the burden of pneumonia. So I work in a lot of large databases to try to understand how pneumonia burden has changed over time. And and that sounds easier than it is. And and the real issue is um, pneumonia is a very difficult disease to diagnose, uh, especially if you're using databases where you may not have the most reliable clinical information. So what we've done is we've basically tried to quantify the burden of pneumonia in different groups of the population, and what we're really interested in is understanding pneumonia burden in people who are otherwise unhealthy for other reasons. So for example, um, people who have underlying comorbidities such as cancer or heart disease or asthma, they appear to be disproportionately affected by pneumonia to start with, and as importantly, um, the pneumococcal vaccine does not appear to work as well in those persons. Additionally, kind of more generally, I work on trying to understand um, vaccine hesitancy like we talked about here today and some of the reasons behind why some um, parents are concerned about vaccination. And I'm also really interested in the the older person's um, population as well.
1: Besides all of that very exciting stuff, what do you like to do for fun?
2: Hmm. Well, I have to preface this with I am a parent of two small children, so um, I spend a lot of my time chasing after my my two little ones, um, which is fun. But the other thing I really like to do is um, photography. And and so I've had an opportunity throughout my life to travel quite a bit. And I really like to photograph um, people and do portraits of of persons. I can't say I'm very good at it, um, but I think it's fun. And I've gotten better at it over time, I think. And I have a fancy camera, so I think maybe my fancy camera is really good at it. Um, Let's see, what else do we like to do? Um, We like to go skiing. And we spend a lot of time um, doing home renovations. And that could just be a product of living in an old home in Boston. I'm not sure.
0: Um, and maybe it's fun or maybe it's not, but, it, but it's always an adventure. So this is kind of a random question, and I'm sure you're really happy with your career as an epidemiologist and a professor. But if you could be anything else and feel free to let your imagination run wild, um, what would you be?
2: Hmm. So I think if I had my first choice, I, of course, would do what I think everybody wants to do, which would be a photographer for National Geographic. I mean, I thought everybody wanted to do that. Um, I think that's part of actually how I ended up in this field is because I thought somehow that studying people would give me more access to people. Other than that, I, I am fairly, I'm very happy with my, my current um, job. One of the beautiful things about uh, working in public health is that it's really diverse. And, and so I, I spend some of my days talking with people. I spend other parts of my days working on my computer. I spend a lot of my time thinking about how to communicate with people. Um, But ultimately, I get to work with people. And so I think that's what I really like about my job.
0: That's really great. It seems like you found your niche. Um, And I think you're right. Everybody does want to be a National Geographic (laughs) photographer. I don't know anyone who does not. Um, So one other question. Since since you're so well-traveled, I was just curious if you have any story off the top of your head that you think is really interesting from being abroad?
2: I feel like I have a lot of stories from from being abroad. Um, I'd say if I had to choose my favorite place in the world, um, so far I really enjoyed my time in, in Namibia. And, you know, I, I only went there on vacation. I, I didn't travel there for work. But... I was there for about a month, so yes, I took a month of vacation. Um, This was before my current job, so this is important. Um, But in Namibia, what I really liked about it is it's a really remote location, and I met a lot of really amazing people and saw some of the most beautiful scenery in, in the world. As far as unique stories, you know, I remember this time. I guess I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and I was I was on a bus, and I was traveling with two girlfriends of mine, and we decided to take the night bus from one side of Kenya to the other side of Kenya. It was about a, an 18-hour trip on a bus. So we so we get in our bus, and um, all the other people are sitting down around us, and we have our three seats, two in front and one in the back. And I happen to be the person in the back, and we're getting settled in. And we lived in the area of Kenya where that was on the equator, so that's 12 hours of sunlight and 12 hours of darkness. And so at approximately 6 p.m., the sunlight starts going down, and we're settling in, getting ready for our, our long bus ride. And uh, I noticed something very strange started to happen around me. And it's, you know, I was, I was kind of tired and, and, you know, there's a lot of smoke in the air. But it looked like the ground was starting to get a little bit fuzzy. And, you know, the again, it was getting very dark. And um, my two friends are kind of looking at me. And then they turned around in their seats and they're waiting to see... They were just looking at me strangely, like, hmm, I wonder, wonder what's going to happen. And when a few minutes go by, and eventually I, I, I feel something, and I feel something crawling on me, and, and I was like, oh, that's weird, and I go to flick it off. I'm living on the equator, after all. And after a few minutes, I, I realize, as my friends are waiting for me to realize this, that I am surrounded by hundreds, maybe thousands, uh, of cockroaches. They're all around me, Uh, they're on the floor, they're on the seats, and and they're coming out for their night, it's their nocturnal activity and they're coming out, and sure enough, they're all around us, and and nobody around me is upset by this, which I thought was really strange. Anyway, they did eventually retreat, Um, they were only out for about 15 minutes or so, and then it seems they went and found their little niches and stayed put for the rest of the ride, but yeah, I'll
1: never forget that. I I didn't ride any more night buses after that. Nope. That was a great story. All right, so as we as we close out our conversation, um, do you have any advice for our listeners besides to not ride a bus in Kenya as the sun is setting? Um, yeah, you know, I, I think
2: I often wear a hat where I'm talking with a lot of people who are just getting into the field of public health, and I think if I were... Um, You know, the piece of advice that I like to give to them is you you have to find the thing that you're really, really passionate about. And in public health, there are a lot of different things. Um, You can get involved with infectious disease, but you can also get involved with maternal and child health or global health, or maybe you're more of a numbers person, maybe you're more of a policy person, whatever it would be. You you find the thing that you're passionate about, and then you have to find the thing that you're good at. And and we're not all good at all things, and, and that's Okay. But find the thing that you're good at, and, and somehow match that to the thing that you're passionate about. That'll help you really enjoy the thing that you're going to do. And, and then the third piece of that is you really have to find the thing that other people will pay you to do. And you know, part of that in public health means you need to be a problem solver, and, and there, you know, you need to be a little bit um, dynamic and flexible in your approach, and be willing to work on the the problems that other people have identified. And so, you know, more formally, if you're a student. That means really thinking strategically about a career and, and making sure that you kind of equip yourself with the skills that you would need to answer important questions. But if you're a community member and, you know, maybe you don't want to be a public health student, you've gone to enough school and you're done with that. I think maybe getting involved with um, other people who are like you, like minded people who want to make a change in the world, who are interested in, in taking some sort of um Collective public health action, keeping your environment clean, or you know, picking up your local park, or get involved with your local health department. Um, something in my own life right now, I have little kids, and so I'm I'm active in a couple of parent groups where we share resources. And um, if there's an immigrant family in the neighborhood that has come here and they don't have any um, baby supplies, we all pitch in and, and help them out. And so, I think there are a lot of opportunities in the world of public health to get involved. Again, find the thing you really like, find the thing you're good at, and then and then find the thing that's needed
1: that's a really great piece of advice yeah it's very useful dr shay again thank you so much for joining us today we learned so much from you and i think our listeners um are really gonna get a lot out of this conversation
2: thank you dina and mira it was really fun to be here with you guys and hear a little bit more about your your project case confirmed and i really look forward to seeing where it goes